I need a quarterback. <laughs> I'm going to go pick up Luke Falk. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 17th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Neil. How How are are you? you? (laughs) And now it's Jeff's turn to say hello. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? I'm doing great. I'm so happy they put that Jets game on national television last night. (laughs) That was just so much fun. I mean, it was just enjoyable football. If you like no offense on one side, quarterback injuries, penalties, everything you want in the game. I think, though, the real important takeaway from this weekend is that my fantasy football team won and both of yours lost. Yeah, we're all one and one. Yeah, we're all we're all we're all mediocre. Uh, This week, I am taking on our producer, Grace Lynch, fresh off her destruction of one Jeff Foster. I didn't realize that you guys were head to head. Well, I lost my hold on. I lost my quarterback for the season in the first quarter. Let's let's wipe that. We all have problems. Look. We all have when that stuff. happens to a real NFL team, no one, you know, judges them based they on that. They do judge them based on They still get the loss. Come on. Get, we're no. we're going to judge the Steelers later in the episode even. Yes, we will judge them and judge them harshly. Oh, we're going to talk about how it affects the Steelers <laughs> and not just my fantasy Strangely, team. yes, we will probably talk about that. <laughs> on today's show, we'll discuss a pair of huge injuries in the NFL We'll be joined by Lindsay D'Arcangelo of The Athletic to discuss the WNBA playoffs, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. One note before we get going here, we talked on last week's show about Antonio Brown and the drama that had played out among him, the Raiders, and the Patriots. That show was recorded before allegations of rape were made public on Tuesday night. There's been no official response from league officials who reportedly met Monday with Brown's accuser. Brown played on Sunday and even saw the most targets of any Patriot. I was surprised by the lack of reaction, both from the league and from NFL media, to those allegations. The same pundits who were up in arms about Brown's behavior towards his now former team have said almost nothing about these extremely serious allegations. I can't figure out why that is. Are we are we afraid in sports to talk about difficult subjects like violence against women? Do we just not have the language to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the sports media has been ill-equipped to talk about these things and not just these particular allegations, but really anything that verges out of that like stick to sports narrow corridor that we're all sort of supposed to go down. One of my problems with it is that I feel like there was backlash, at least, you know, when when these allegations came out. But it was all about the fact that Brown had behaved so poorly to the Raiders, basically. And like the idea that he was a bad teammate and more inclined to be a bad person because of things that he had done in the context of his like contractual obligations to a football team than anything else. I think it's just reflective of the fact that the NFL, this is still an ongoing problem. The NFL doesn't know how to deal with this. You go back to the, you know, the case that sort of brought this issue to light in a lot of regards of Ray Rice from a few years ago in the media. It was just widely ignored until there was a video of the actual incident. And then there was this huge tsunami of coverage. But, you know, people were willing to, you know, 
not make a big deal of it until until that video emerged. And I think the NFL, obviously, you know, when you look at Greg Hardy and Tyreek Hill, they don't really know how to handle this. In terms of the NFL, they might make a decision this week. So I think it also is unfolding a little bit. More information is obviously emerging um, each day. But I agree. It does seem like in this particular story was like so back and forth that by the time this came out, you know, a lot of the media was just kind of like lifting up their hands and saying, we don't we're going to move on because we don't even know how to process this anymore. The Ray Rice case is an interesting one to me. You write that there was a video and that made people pay attention. There have been subsequent cases with videos of, you know, violence against women or violence against children or, you know, violence. And we don't, it's like we can't continue to process it and we can't deal with it. And the league hasn't dealt with it the same. Ray Rice was sort of made an example of. And then we've now backed away from this. And now it's just nobody knows what to do. And it's easier to just talk about what happened on the field. We are going to talk about what happened on the field. We're going to talk about what happened to Ben Roethlisberger this weekend. He's another player who has been accused of and was suspended for rape allegations in the past. That's just an easier thing for sports media to do. But there's it just seems to me like we have to figure out how to talk about this problem that is endemic in sports and in society, and we just don't know how to talk about it. We have to figure out how to talk about how to talk about violence against women all the time and also in sports. And it was, you know, really uncomfortable to sort of just see Brown out there on the field and to just know that, you know, the league was very much hoping that we would just kind of ignore all of the stuff around it. But to be honest, the league, you know, they can't throw up their hands in this particular case and say, oh, we can't, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's civil. It's this, that, and the other. They have shown broad latitude in the past to suspend people over things that were not proven, not, you know, just accusations uh, and, and not criminal cases in the past. So I think the league's own just tremendous inconsistency in how they treat different cases and different things that people have been accused of has led them to this point as well, because they could have suspended Antonio Brown if they had wanted to, and it would have been not without precedent, and yet they didn't, and I think in a lot of ways cast a pall over the proceedings on Sunday that, you know, he was on the field. Is it more the responsibility of the league to deal with the situation, or is it more the responsibility of the media to continue to have the conversation around this? I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, the league has a responsibility to the fans to try to send a message that they're not tolerating this. But, you know, they've done like you said, with Ray Rice, they I think they tried to come down really heavy the second time around after kind of whiffing on it the first time, but only as sort of this very ham handed like example that then they could kind of hold up and say, see, we we're doing things. And then like, you know quietly ignore subsequent cases. Yeah, the media is sort of in the middle of that because they're reporting on things and we are waiting on the facts, like you said, Jeff, you know, in this particular case. But at the same time, I don't know, showing Antonio Brown scoring and and all of that is sort of a glorification of this idea that you can do whatever you want, especially with regard to what he's accused of and totally get away with it for now. You know, I don't know what will happen later. I think one thing that is true in the Ray Rice case obviously showed this 
is that in this weird kangaroo Roger Goodell court where he's, you know, judge and jury and, and everything. And there's, it's, it all seems arbitrary. They do, he does, and the league does respond to media pressure. So in that regard, I, I do think it is on the media. I mean, if there's enough media pr- pressure, he'll suspend the most famous player in his league for four games for deflating footballs, maybe. Um, and also maybe that's against the rules. I mean, a lot of this can become a groundswell when it's getting enough attention. Um, but it hasn't been getting any attention, which sort of gives him a free pass. That deflate gate is a great example of why I'm so frustrated because who cares about minor changes in the pressure of the balls who cares it's ridiculous who cares about four that? games he was suspended for that yeah and antonio brand has already contributed more to the patriots than the deflation of the psi exactly, yeah. in, in that football yeah. did in that afc title game yeah it makes me as a woman as a female fan of the nfl feel like i matter zero amounts but some nonsense vision of the integrity of the game is paramount and that is a ridiculous message from the NFL and something they have to get figured out as we go forward here. Let's put that aside for now and move on to discuss what happened on the field during the second week of the NFL season. Two franchise quarterbacks suffered season-altering injuries on Sunday. Drew Brees tore a ligament in his thumb and is expected to be out for six to eight weeks. And Ben Roethlisberger sustained an elbow injury and will be out for the remainder of the season. On NBC's Football Night in America, Mike Tirico, Mike Florio, and Rodney Harrison discussed how these teams will rebound without their star QBs. Big headline, guys, the injuries to the quarterbacks. Ben Roethlisberger hurt in Pittsburgh, Drew Brees in New Orleans. Which team of the two is better equipped to go forward if they're going to be without one of those guys for a while? So I think the Saints will be, will be better off Mike, without I, Brees. I completely agree with you. I think the, the experience, backup quarterback experience, and Teddy Bridgewater, he went to a Pro Bowl. He has experience. But Sean Payton is the X factor. He's an offensive guru. He knows what to do with his, his quarterback, allow Teddy Bridgewater to naturally do what he does best. Jeff, do you agree with the assessment that the Saints will be better off than the Steelers? Well, I think they're better off in the sense that it appears, at least for now, that Breeze will come back this year. I mean, he's sound out for the season, so there's that. I think also in terms of New Orleans, their division uh, with Carolina looking surprisingly way worse than I think most of us thought and and Atlanta and Tampa being sort of imperfect, I think they're still probably the favorites in their division despite losing Breeze for a number of weeks. Whereas, I mean, the Steelers, again, compound that with him being gone for the year. You have a completely unproven entity in Mason Rudolph at quarterback compared to – which, granted, Rudolph has a probably has a higher ceiling than, than Teddy Bridgewater. I think we know what we're expecting with Bridgewater. But you compound that with the fact that the Ravens look so good and Lamar Jackson and everything, and, and they're 0-2. Neil, our model is uh, this year uniquely qualified yeah, year <laughs> to, to, add these. Yeah, to talk about quarterbacks. So how does our model – how did our model respond to these injuries? Yeah, so the second that I typed into our handy spreadsheet that tracks uh, quarterback injuries, uh, I put Breeze in and the Saints playoff Odds dropped from 58% to 51%. For the games Breeze is missing, they'll have gone from a team that, you know, their power rating, their ELO rating uh, would be sixth in the league with Breeze. They'll be 
equivalent to the 21st best team in the league without Breeze. Teddy Bridgewater is considered to be roughly 45 points of ELO rating worse than an average starter. But again, because uh, Breeze is only expected to miss six weeks, our model still gives, you know, a healthy playoff probability to the Saints. They're uh, Right now, they're exactly at a coin flip, basically. It's 50-50 as to whether they'll uh, make the playoffs. And it bears mentioning also that we'll kind of see how Breeze plays after that. This assumes that he'll continue to play at a high level, uh, but he's actually been kind of mediocre since midseason last year, and a lot of people were even sort of wondering before the season if that portended a nosedive in performance at his age. There's more uncertainty in, in how he'll play when he comes back, but definitely for the Steelers, it seems like it's a lot worse because their playoff odds went from 31% to 8% uh, when we added the Roethlisberger injury, and we could expect them to play, instead of the 17th best team in the league, play like like that they'll play like the 31st best team in the league so uh, basically better only than than the dolphins who are like you know way 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 below that <laughs> uh you know the gap between 31st and 32nd is wide but still the one thing there is that this might be underrating mason rudolph our model thinks that he's 84 elo points worse than an average quarterback but he was actually not terrible when he came in for Roethlisberger on Sunday. He had a 52.5 total QBR. But yeah, these are like pretty devastating injuries in in both cases, especially when it comes to the Steelers. So our model, would last year's version have been able to see these changes in ELO? Not right away. So uh, yeah, as you alluded to, we put in that quarterback adjustment. I think I talked about this on the show um, going into the season. Now we can kind of slot in and out the starting quarterback for each team, and each quarterback carries kind of a talent rating that reflects how we expect them to perform going forward. So yeah, in last year's model and the previous years before that, it would have taken weeks for ELO to kind of surmise from the drop-off in performance of both teams that hmm, something seems to be wrong with the Saints <laughs> And Steelers, but I don't really know why. Whereas now we can kind of say, you know, we'll dock them the points immediately. And so then their rating can kind of reflect that. And then in the case of Breeze, when he comes back, we also won't be underrating the Saints on the back end unless, like I said before, Breeze struggles, you know, to come back. It did look a little uh, concerning. I don't know if you guys saw that clip of him on the sideline, like literally trying to pick up a football and he couldn't do it. And it like fell out of his hand. And he was like, this this doesn't seem good. Rodney Harrison called Saints coach Sean Payton the X factor, that he's an offensive guru who can get the most out of a quarterback. But Jeff, this is just Peyton's second game as a head coach without a healthy Drew Brees, a stat I find astonishing. What is there exactly for Peyton to do in this kind of situation? The thing with Bridgewater that's interesting is that even in Minnesota, and you you probably know this better than anyone, Sarah, he, he was pretty much a game manager. He was, you know, a guy who didn't make that many mistakes and, and leaned on his running game and his defense. And we've seen plenty of those types of quarterbacks have a success but I think Breeze going into this year I was a little worried about him I think as uh, you guys discussed on on the chat the other day you know his deep ball last year was not good it looked like you know it, there was a lot less zip on his passes but he was still so accurate and so decisive and he got rid of the ball so quickly and and I think now they have no choice but to lean on that running game which is a good thing for them they have a great running back 
but we'll be it'll be interesting to see how much you know the opposing defense doesn't respect the pass and they can stack the box and even in that one game granted that's a tough game to come in for Bridgewater you know on the road against the Rams he wasn't really throwing the ball to Kamara very much which I was sort of surprised by and I think that's a little worrisome I think they're gonna have to work on that and they're gonna have to use their weapons which exist um and and find a way to get the ball to tom michael thomas and and alvin kamara obviously and also we should note sarah you said that you know that number about his head coaching career without uh drew Brees, but i will say he was the offensive coordinator for the 2000 new york football giants he made Kerry collins into a super bowl quarterback now we won't say what happened in that super bowl (laughs) but you know that's not nothing right Teddy Bridgewater is probably better than Kerry Collins, right? Ooh, interesting question. Yeah, good question. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting also that so many times a quarterback like this, will, like a Hall of Fame franchise quarterback will get hurt and then the backup comes in and, and, and we're all like, oh, God, that was their backup plan? Wow. Um, but here the Saints have actually like established a very good backup plan they spent a lot of money to re-sign uh teddy bridgewater you know seven million dollars for a free agent backup quarterback was unusual they traded a third rounder for him it's it could be worse they seemed to have a plan they were they were preparing for this they took him away from the jets who could maybe use him right now as they are down several quarterbacks. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Let's not talk about the Jets Good too call. Much. Good call. The Jets are a strange team that has all the appearance of a team that's tanking, yet also is a team that spent all its money in free agency this last offseason. So... That's just not a combination you want in the NFL. Seems like a good game plan. Here's yeah. another hilarious thing is that in our model, Teddy Bridgewater has a higher rating than any of the Jets quarterbacks, including Darnold. Well, come on. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at the Steelers. Neil, you said in our Slack chat yesterday that Pittsburgh was in trouble even before Roethlisberger went out. What other problems are they facing? Well, I mean, it kind of sounds obvious, but they're 0-2, and that's a really bad place to be. So I was going back and looking at some of the research that our uh, former colleague Ben Morris did, and he used to say that the first two weeks of the NFL season were actually sort of the crunch time of the season. They were as important in terms of telling us about the trajectory of a team's season as, like, multiple other regular season games or even kind of approaching uh, playoff games in terms of um, importance toward Super Bowl odds. So, for instance, when a team starts 0-2, they tend to only win 5.7 games and they make the playoffs only 10% of the time. A team that starts 1-1, though, wins 8.2 games on average and makes the playoffs 41% of the time. So we can already know a lot about a team and where it will finish based on how it starts. Now, maybe you would say... Did the 0-2 start cause them to finish 6-10, and or did they start 0-2 because they were already bad? In which case you could say, oh, well, the Steelers, they looked like a maybe a top-10 team in the league going in. I think they were 7th in ELO uh, before the season. But they also missed the playoffs last year. You know, there's a lot of off-field turmoil. Some of that's removed uh, with Antonio Brown. But, you know, they weren't all that competitive at all against the Patriots, barely more than the Dolphins were. They rank close to last and pretty much every category in terms of expected points added. So it seems like the Steelers might be closer to that team that started 0-2, you know, because they were actually not a good team. Well, Neil, let's zoom out and look at how these injuries affect their divisions. Who are the teams to beat now in the AFC North and NFC South? So in the AFC North, Baltimore has 
now taken kind of a commanding lead in our projections. They have a 67% chance to win the division. We were higher on them than we were on the Browns going into the season anyway. And the Browns, certainly they dominated Jeff's Jets last night. They uh, sort of disappointed in their opener. And uh, I think with the Ravens, I'm going to be writing a story this week about Lamar Jackson. But, you know, the way that he has played to start the season we touched on it a little bit last week, but then he followed it up with another great game seems to indicate that the Ravens could have, you know, a much higher ceiling than we thought they did going into the year. We sort of put them in that next tier of like oh, pretty good teams, but not really like true Super Bowl contenders unless something goes wrong in Kansas city or new England or something like that. Uh, but I think the Ravens look really a lot scarier when, um, if Lamar Jackson is for real and it's he's giving us more evidence by the week that he is we still have New Orleans as favorites to win the NFC South which I find interesting um Atlanta uh is behind them and those two teams New Orleans has a 44% chance of win the, winning the division Atlanta's at 32% and you know we think Atlanta will finish 8 and 8 and have New Orleans at 9 and 7 even after accounting for the Breeze injury. So, I don't know how much this says about, you know, Carolina not looking good at all in their first two games, Cam Newton looking terrible and then Tampa Bay just, you know, Jameis Winston being inconsistent. What do we have mediocre. Carolina at? We only give them a 10% chance of winning the division and think they'll finish 6 and 10 and then for Tampa 14% and think they'll finish 7 and 9. So, uh t- I will say Tampa was the bi- you know biggest beneficiary. It wasn't like a huge um change or anything like that when we first ran the Drew Brees injury into the model, but their playoff odds went up by like two percentage points when uh when New Orleans is dropped. So, we have this NFL bot in in Slack that tells us when changes have happened of greater than two percentage points to the um, playoff odds based on a change that we made. And so those were the only two teams that showed up as having any kind of significant change when Breeze got hurt. Bunch of teams showed up when uh, we put in the, the Roethlisberger injury for Pittsburgh. And notably, Nothing changed at all when we factored in the fact that Eli Manning might not be the giant starter anymore. It just was like a totally blank, like, we finished running the forecast, here are the biggest changes, and then just like, nothing. It was like, meh. Like, eh, For the record, matter. by the way, you said the Browns dominated the Jets. The Browns did not look that great last night. You take away an 89-yard touchdown by Odell Beckham, and there was an offense that wasn't really executing that well and uh, a lot of penalties and a lot of mistakes Mayfield has a little bit of an interception problem I'm not talking about the Jets here I'm talking about I was not that impressed with the Browns were you you can disagree with me did they look like a dynamic team last night I mean you know it's everything is relative and you know at least relative to the Jets they looked good yeah it's hard to be a dynamic team when you're you know you're, you're playing down to your level of competition sometimes Jeff Oh, okay. So it's the Jets' fault. <laughs> exactly. I think that's a good place to leave this discussion. We'll uh, we'll have to see how these injuries continue to affect the NFL over the course of the season. Let's pause for one minute for a word from this week's sponsor, ButcherBox. If you've maybe been procrastinating on taking advantage of ButcherBox's amazing offer, it's okay. You're not too late. 
Every month, ButcherBox delivers humanely raised 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. Choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box with all of your favorite cuts. And with free shipping, ButcherBox makes getting high-quality meat with no added hormones or antibiotics easier than ever. And this month, ButcherBox is offering new members $20 off your first box plus free ground beef for the life of your subscription when you sign up at ButcherBox.com takedown. That's right. In addition to all the great meat you get, ButcherBox is knocking $20 off your first box and throwing in two pounds of free ground beef in every box for the life of your subscription. Just head to butcherbox.com slash takedown for this exclusive deal. That's butcherbox.com slash takedown. The best of five WNBA semifinals begin tonight with the Connecticut Sun facing off against the Los Angeles Sparks at 6.30 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Washington Mystics taking on the Las Vegas Aces at 8.30 p.m. To break down what to watch for as we barrel toward the championship, we're thrilled to be joined again by Lindsay D'Arcangelo, who covers the WNBA for The Athletic. Thanks so much for being here, Lindsay. Thanks for having me, guys. So the last time that we spoke, right around the All-Star break, the Aces were 13-6 and and kind of on a roll. They cooled off a little going 8-7 and down the stretch, but they still secured the number three seed for the playoffs which led to an incredible game Sunday against the Chicago Sky, capped off by an iconic moment to end the game. Can you walk us through what happened there, Lindsay? Yes, the Sky were up, uh, the Chicago Sky, I should say, were up 92-90, to and they were inbounding the ball. There were about 13 seconds left. The ball was inbounded to Courtney Vandersloot, who you want to have the ball in that situation. She's uh, probably the best point guard in the league right now. And she dribbled around, was trying not to get fouled, and for some reason, if you look at her angle in the replay, you could see that Diamond DeShields is down the court on the wing, and she looks open for a split second. And Courtney just heaved the ball down there. And uh, the sixth woman of the year, Derricka Hamby on the Las Vegas Aces, came almost like out of nowhere, snagged the ball from the air, managed to to tiptoe the sideline. Some people think she stepped out. I don't know. You can, you can't really tell from the camera angle. And she just took a couple dribbles and heaved the ball just past mid court. You can see the replay. She looked at the clock, but I don't know how much time she thought was left. And, the ball went in and uh <laughs> that's pretty much how it ended um time ran out after that and uh aces won was that the craziest ending to like a game in WNBA history i think so i'm trying to think back and you know most of my my memory will go to the ncaa college level where you have you know have had last second shots in the final four these past few years but this this was pretty pretty crazy, and I think I think you're right. I think it's probably one of it will go down as one of the best last second shots. You have that the one that Teresa Witherspoon hit for the New York Liberty in 1997. Um, that was a half court heave further back from what Hamby hit that um, sent uh, the Liberty back to the Houston Comets for uh, to tie up that series one one and the championship back then. But yeah. I think other than that, this might be the, the second greatest one I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, especially for the um, for the situation with the one game playoff with everything on the line. Yeah. here, um, it really made it it made it just amazing. Yeah, it uh, I shared I shared the slow mo replay on on Twitter and, and it just got retweeted and took off um, so many times people, you know, 
people who just don't watch the WNBA, they don't really realize what they're missing um, with with you know with this game and these players pulling something like that off. So now the Aces face the Mystics. Do you think they stand a chance? I thought it was interesting that this is the matchup between the number one offense in the league, that's Washington, and the number one defense, which is Vegas. But then if you like look at the gap between the Mystic offense and the rest of the league, it was 12.6 points uh, of efficiency, better than the next best team. And then the Aces defense was only 0.9 points per 100, better than number two. So uh, what, what do you think about the, the chances for Vegas to kind of pull an upset? I think they have to have a close to perfect uh, series against Washington. They have to play strong defense, like you like you mentioned, and keep uh, the Mystics off the glass for rebounding, which they have the capability to do. But I think where the Aces' downfall could be are their turnovers. They had 18 turnovers against Chicago, and the fact that they ended up winning that game is is is, is surprising to me because Chicago only had eight turnovers in that whole game. So if they want to beat the Mystics, they just have to cut back on the turnovers and they have to score a lot of points. Cause like you said, the Mystics lead the league in scoring. And when they get rolling, uh, look out, you know, they could easily drop a hundred points or more on a team. Yeah. Where, where do you think the Mystics rank? Uh, I think we talked about this a little bit last time you were on the show, but in terms of just single season performances by a team, especially by an offense, this has to be one of, if not the best in history, right? I don't think they're the best. I think the Houston Comets still hold that role um, from the, from the late nineties, uh, you know, winning four championships, um, so the Mystics, you know, they're right there, but uh, and that was an iconic team. That was an iconic team, yes. And they, you know, the Mystics have Daladon, who just, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about her statistics coming up, but yeah, she just had one of the best seasons I've ever seen a WNBA player ever have, and uh, you know, they're just they're really. I hate to use the cliche, but they're firing on all cylinders. You know, they're just really rolling right now. Yeah. Well, so as you mentioned, Deladon just made the first ever 50, 40, 90 stat line in WNBA history. She seems completely unstoppable right now. And when she is on, the team is just on. Is there a way to slow her down? How do you stop a locomotive at full speed would be would be my question. Because right now she's she's healthy. She's having fun. She's playing the best possible of her career. I think what the Aces have to do is, is throw some doubles and maybe even triple teams, force her to pass the ball out, force her role players to step up and hit shots that uh, you know she normally could 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 make or easily get to the basket. So I think that's the game plan going in. But with the way the Mystics have been playing and how well her role players have been playing, um, that might not work either. So. It's it's one of those things you at least have to try to slow her down and, and see what see what you can do from a defensive standpoint. So who do you like in, in the series? I like the Mystics. I just think the offense is just too much for the Aces. I think as the top-scoring team in the league and having the MVP of the league, I know it hasn't been announced yet, but there's no way she's not going to get MVP. Um, I think the Mystics... <laughs> you heard it here yeah. first. <laughs> yeah, I think, Breaking news. I think the Mystics are going to sweep the series. Oh, wow, yeah. sweep. I could see the Aces maybe getting uh, one win in, but I wouldn't be surprised if the if the Mystics swept the series. Well, so in the other semifinal, we have the Connecticut Sun facing off against the Los Angeles Sparks. The Sparks had kind of a slow start to the season before picking up steam. How is their team looking heading into this matchup? I was not high on the Sparks for most of the season, I'll be honest. They kind of flew under the radar for a bit. 
and then they took the league by surprise, uh, or at least me by surprise. Part of the reason for that, I think, is because they were missing a few key players here and there at different spots during the season. Candace Parker and Elena Beard, the former Defensive Player of the Year. And they still managed to win games, though, which is speaks to their bench. And then now that everyone's back and healthy, they're re- playing really good team basketball. So... I think going into the playoffs, the Sparks look good, and uh, they could they could upset the Sun here. This seems like a really even matchup. Um, it if, is. If you just look at the rankings for the teams, it's like the Sun had the third best offense, but the Sparks were fourth, mm-hmm. and then the Sparks had the third best defense, but the Sun were fourth. So, what what do you think will sort of be like the tipping point that that determines this? I think it's going to come down to bench players. I think that the Sparks have the better bench. And a lot of those players were forced to step up during the season while uh, I mentioned Parker and Beard were out with injuries and other players were out due to other reasons. But you have Chinea Gumake who comes off the bench. You have Sydney Weiss who comes off the bench. Beard is a bench player, but again, she was the former defensive player of the year. So if you look at their game against the Storm on Sunday, those three helped the Sparks go on a 23-8 to run while the stars were out. So um, Weiss is going to be the key, one of the key players for the Sparks in this series. Uh, she needs to step up and uh, make some big plays when she comes in. But uh, I just, I just think the Sparks have the better bunch here. So do you think, do you see the Sparks pulling the upset? I see this going back and forth. I think both teams were excellent at home throughout the season. I know the Connecticut Sun had the best record with 15 and two at home, but I think both teams are going to get win on their home courts, but I think the Sun will eventually pull out a game five. I think this is going to going to go to a, a game five. So your final matchup then would be the Mystics and the Sun. Yes, yes. You wrote recently that you felt like the Sun had the best chance against the Mystics. How do you see that final playing out? If if in fact we get there, I think this is going to be a really fun series. If we if it if this is what what happens with the Mystics and the Sun in the finals. Because you have the top two teams in the league, the two top scoring teams in the league, uh, teams that have both gone on extended winning streaks throughout the season and also have dealt with adversity and, and rebounded after consecutive losses. So so they have they have that. And both teams are quick and agile. Both teams can shoot from the, behind the arc. Uh, both teams have versatile post players. You got Jonquil Jones and uh, uh, Lena Deladon. I think what we have here is like just the f- a fitting matchup um, for for these two teams, and what uh, uh, w- would make for a very fun and exciting finals. Do you think it's Deladon's turn to win a ring, uh, given how well she's played, and and you know, like you mentioned, this like all time season that she's had? It's, it seems like it would be sort of a fitting way for her to cap off the year by also adding a championship. I do, yes, definitely. And I think that anything less than a championship for this Mystics team, especially coming from last year where they, they made it to the finals and lost against the Storm, I think anything less than a championship would would be considered a, a failure for them, a failure of the season for them. And you mentioned that it seems obvious that uh, she's going to win the MVP, but each of the previous three MVPs had won championships too, right? So that sort of seems like a good omen for her, at least, if the, she does make it to the finals. Yeah, yeah, that would you would think, right? Um, I think... In a in the Sun Mystics series, I think the Mystics would pull it out. I wouldn't be surprised if that went to a fifth game as well. Um, but I do see the Mystics winning winning this year. All right. Well, we'll have to see how it plays out. But it's been exciting so far. Can't wait to see the next couple of series. Right. And I could be totally wrong. <laughs> <I'm gonna put laughs> well, of course. There. No, no, no. <laughs> no, we're going to take. I mean, this we're wrong all the time anyway. So. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay. We look forward to reading more of your work on The Athletic on the WNBA. Yeah, thanks. Enjoy the games tonight. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, get us started. Thanks, Sarah. So oftentimes in these rabbit holes, we talk about things that like did exist but don't anymore or just weird quirks of sports history that seem like relics from another time. And we retreated to one of those things this past weekend, maybe for the last time ever. So on Sunday, the Chiefs played the Raiders at Oakland's Ring Central Coliseum. And we could do like a whole other rabbit hole around what that stadium has looked like and been called over the years. But anyway, so the Chiefs won 28 to 10 as expected. So what could possibly have been historically notable about this game? Well, it probably marked the final time that a pro football team will ever play on a field with infield dirt from baseball visible uh, on the on the playing surface because there was a baseball team that played at the same stadium. So the A's, with whom the Raiders share the Coliseum, they have a 93% chance of making the playoffs. So their season could potentially go until October 30th if they make the World Series and it goes seven games. Imagine that universe. But the Raiders, in the meantime, will play four road games between now and November they have a bye in week six, and while they do have one designated home game in week five against the Bears, it's in London, and that means by the time the Raiders play another true home game, the A season will be over no matter what, and that also means that the dirt will be permanently removed from the field surface, so no more playing football on a baseball field. The Raiders were the last team to do this anyway, the, to share a dual-purpose stadium with a baseball team, and it's kind of bizarre when you think about it that they ever let that kind of thing happen in the first place but it dates back to the 1960s when cities started building these cookie cutter you know multi-purpose stadiums when the uh, wave of old decrepit parks of the early 1900s started to kind of be demolished and replaced and so these stadiums they all looked alike hence the cookie cutter uh, moniker uh, they were like giant concrete donuts they they had artificial turf which was also uh, a big kind of new thing that took over sports during the 1960s and the plan was for cities to save money particularly via infrastructure costs by having all of its sports teams just play at the same location this led to some of the most memorable multi-purpose stadiums aside from oakland like san diego's qualcomm stadium also known as jack murphy stadium it housed the chargers and padres for about 30 years joe robbie stadium in miami the dolphins still play there it's called hard rock stadium uh speaking of stadiums that have changed their names a million (laughs) times to ridiculous things over the years uh the marlins played there until 2012 when they fleeced the city of miami into building marlins park which is another rabbit hole unto itself also that involved a uh ridiculous sculpture in center field i like that little commentary like slide slide everything is ridiculous when it comes to (laughs) sports stadiums uh but i think that's on brand for our rabbit hole (laughs) candlestick park in san francisco that housed the giants and the 49ers from the 1970s through the 90s veteran stadium in philadelphia where the phillies and eagles played and that was infamously home to a functioning court with a judge and a uh, holding cell at the stadium due to unruly fan behavior <laughs> speaking of things being on brand uh for for philly do you guys have any other favorites that uh, among this era of multi-purpose uh cookie cutter stadiums i mean the metro well, what about shea we both named the stadiums we grew up going to. <laughs> 
I mean, the Metrodome was amazing because the end had already been announced and sort of planned for it, but then the roof collapsed and allowed a torrent of snow to fall through. Which, if there's ever been a metaphor for the Vikings, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) The twins were already gone by that point. They had already moved into Target Field. But yeah, if you're trying to watch the Jets, or even for one season, the the Giants, they played at Shea Stadium in 1975. In fact, um, in that one particular season... The uh, Shea Stadium hosted the Mets, the Jets, the Yankees, and the Giants, if you can believe it, in in 1975. Because they were doing renovations at uh, Yankee Stadium. The trend kind of went away when MLB teams started building these baseball-only parks in the 1990s, and they deliberately wanted to evoke this retro, pre-cookie-cutter aesthetic. Um, Baltimore's Camden Yards was sort of the the first one that kicked off that trend, and it was the beginning of the end for the multi-purpose stadium. Um, according to Wikipedia, Sarah's favorite source, uh, seven of the 11 cookie-cutter stadiums that were built during the 1960s and 70s have now been demolished. And... The Raiders themselves are set to leave Oakland and move to Las Vegas next season where they will play at brand new Allegiant Stadium, uh, which also will not have baseball. So that will be the end of the era of playing football on dirt baseball infields ever, I guess, Uh, you know, unless something weird happens in the future. One last fun note on this rabbit hole is that the Chiefs quarterback in the game Sunday was, of course, Patrick Mahomes and Mahomes' dad, Pat Sr., pitched in the major leagues for 11 years, played nine career games at that exact same stadium. Patrick was great on Sunday. He threw four touchdown passes in a single quarter, but his father was not so great at the Coliseum in his career. He went 0-3 with a 6.12 earned run average in Oakland. He allowed nine home runs in 25 innings, and that was the most home runs he had allowed in his career at any visiting park. So unlike father, the son has done a lot better in this, and... Yeah, an era coming to a close. I was just checking quick to see if Pat Mahomes had played during the Twins A's division series in 2002 at the Coliseum, but he wasn't with the team yet, so never mind. That's too bad, but he was a twin. (laughs) He was a twin, I'm sure. So he did play the Metrodome. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Pat Mahomes was a solid long reliever. (laughs) Fully agree. (laughs) If your starter got totally lit up and you needed a solid five or six innings, he was he was very good at that job. I mean, okay, his son seems to be surpassing him with this whole NFL MVP thing. (laughs) A little, a little bit. Slightly. I'll I'll concede that. But they each had their purpose. (laughs) Jeff, what would you guess Pat Mahomes Sr.'s career ERA is? 4.25. Nope. No, it's 5.47. Oh, that's high. Okay. Maybe I just have fond memories of one good game he had. Yeah, the, the, the dirty, the dirty secret of, uh, the Mahomes family is that Pat Sr., not all that good of a pitcher, but, if that's what it took for Patrick to be so good at football, then I think <laughs> we'll that's a trade it. we'll take. I should also say special thanks to ESPN's John McTeague for a lot of the research used in this rabbit hole. He and the folks at ESPN Stats and Info are amazing, and uh, we appreciate their work. I think that will do it for this week's show. Thank you guys very much. Good luck in your uh, future fantasy matchups. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.